Welcome to another episode of Dakota Spotlight. I really appreciate you listening and would like you to know about Spotlight Plus. It is a subscription to Dakota Spotlight that provides bonus content, early access, and ad-free listening, all while supporting my work and the show you love. You can subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app or visit dakotaspotlight.com. Hello again, friends. Welcome to this episode three of the rebroadcast of Zealand about the tragic murders of Wade and Ellen Zick in 1976. A lot happened last time. BCI showed up in Zealand, and while Wade Zick's daughter and her family basically waited outside of the bank for any news, Sheriff Wiest finally got a lead. Katie Feist, a local farmer, thought her grandsons, David and Sebastian, might be mixed up in all of this, as they had arrived home in the middle of the night, early Sunday morning, in a huge hurry, packed their bags, and sped away in a car driven by some other person. And there was that other local farmer named Huber who called the state police to let them know that his son Greg was missing, his car was missing, and a shotgun was missing from the home. So as the sun was setting, BCI agents drove out to the Huber home and talked to another teenager in the Huber family, the brother of the missing Greg. This brother told law enforcement that Greg and two other kids named David and Sebastian Feist had been talking a lot lately about robbing a bank. Then, two local residents, nicknamed Spike and Whitey, they wanted to help out with the search for the Zicks, and ultimately, out at a gravel pit north of town, they found the lifeless bodies of Wade and Ellen. And so, suddenly, Sheriff Wiest had a pretty good idea of what happened and who was behind it all. As you'll see in this episode, it was too late, too dark to process the scene at this gravel pit. So Sheriff Wiest and BCI placed some guards there for the night, and they waited for sunrise. Here is episode three. Chapter nine, until dawn. At 11.30 p.m., having informed the public that the Zicks had been killed, Sheriff Wiest returned to the gravel pit outside of town. He was accompanied by two BCI agents named Hanke and Olson. The FBI were in Zealand now as well, and an agent named Ken Aldridge joined them. Waiting for them at the scene were Sheriff's Deputy Ruid, Spike Levi, Whitey Klein, as well as two BCI agents named Liebeck and Hickman. While FBI agent Aldridge took statements from Spike and Whitey, the others assessed the situation. It was dark. They made a unanimous decision. The only course of action was to sit tight until the sun returned. Processing the scene now would be too risky. Evidence could be overlooked or inadvertently damaged or destroyed. Deputy Ruid and Agents Liebeck and Hickman were assigned to guard the area until morning. Wiest and the other men returned to the command post. Spike Levi and Whitey Klein finally got to go home. With the Zicks now confirmed to be deceased, law enforcement shifted their focus fully to apprehending whoever may have killed the Zicks. And of course, they had a very good idea who it was. Working off of the interviews that Sickler and Westfall had done earlier at the Huber home, Wiest asked state radio to put out an alert throughout a five-state area. This alert was short of a full-scale and national all-points bulletin, or APB. An APB would require an arrest warrant, and that's one thing Sheriff Wiest and Agent Sickler didn't have at the moment. They would spend most of the night working to get one.
In Casper, Wyoming, Natrona County Sheriff Deputy Robinette had returned home from his shift. Like other cops, Robinette often listened to police radio while off-duty. At 1.40 a.m., he sat drinking a beverage when the following bulletin was broadcast. Attention, be on the lookout for three men driving a 1968 four-door Chevrolet with North Dakota license 26-636. Persons of interest are Gregory Jean Huber, aged 18, Sebastian, a.k.a. Butch Feist, aged 18, David Feist, aged 21, wanted for questioning and bank robbery, kidnapping, and murder. Milton Waste Sheriff, Ashley, North Dakota. Deputy Robinette quickly called into the office and spoke with the officer on duty, a man named O'Brien. He recognized the name David Feist, he told O'Brien. He'd been in their office that very day at around 4 p.m., paying a bond for a speeding ticket. Highway Patrolman Bloomfield brought him in, Robinette added. Night Officer O'Brien telephoned Trooper Bloomfield at his home, waking him up. The groggy highway patrolman checked his notes and passed on David Pice's driver's license number and date of birth. It was time to make a call to North Dakota and tell them that their suspects appeared to be heading west. Other than locking their doors, it's hard to imagine what the residents of McIntosh County were thinking during the wee hours of Monday, July 12th. They had not yet learned that the suspects were several states away. One can wonder if anyone got any sleep at all. John Reedy told me the following story about a family that had previously hired one of the Feist brothers, Butch, to do some work on their farm. Yeah, in a small town like, like that. You know, it's, it's like I said, it's a big city crime that happened in where everybody, you know, like, like friends, everybody knows their name, you know. And, and then so Sunday night was kind of a, a, a wreck for everybody because people were scared. You know, what, where are they? Uh, what are they going to do? Are they coming back? A lot of farmers liked him. He was a hell of a work, the younger brother. You know, and then when he dropped out of school, he had lots of jobs. You know, he was a, he was a good hand. He was a good worker. A lot of guys hire him out for whatever reason. And a buddy of mine... You know, his family, they had worked with worked with him. You know, they were afraid. No, no one knew what was going to happen. So that night, his whole family, including his dad, two brothers, they went upstairs into a bedroom. His, his dad, obviously, was an old World War II veteran, and they turned off all the lights in the house. And they were all in one room with protection and and slept with the lights off. It was, it was pretty nasty. While the rest of a very unnerved McIntosh County triple-checked their locks on their doors, law enforcement had a long night ahead of them. Agents and officers were spread out all around Zeeland on that first night on various assignments. At the command post, Sheriff Wiest and BCI agent Sickler were busy compiling their notes and evidence to prepare a criminal complaint and get warrants issued. Without a promise of an arrest warrant, there could be no national all-points bulletin. At about this time, news finally arrived from Wyoming that David Feist had been pulled over outside of Casper some ten hours earlier. He had two passengers with him at the time. 
At 4 a.m., Wiest and Sickler looked down at their notes, and they knew they had enough. If this was not enough probable cause, then nothing was. Wiest called and woke up McIntosh County Justice Richard Hare, informing him of what they had assembled. Wiest spoke with the judge first, and then handed the phone over to Sickler. They threw everything they had at the judge. The Zicks were dead, shotgunned to death in a gravel pit on the Feist land. The Feist brothers and Greg Huber left in a hurry in the middle of the night with guns, and people had overheard the boys talking about robbing people and leaving them in Alex's pit. Judge Hare listened quietly and considered the evidence the men had gathered. Okay, he said. Go ahead with the complaint. We can meet in the morning. Sickler hung up the phone and gave Weist a thumbs up. Just a few moments later, about 24 hours after Wade and Ellen died, an APB went out across the United States. Eight miles west of Zealand, Agent Westfall was sitting in a vehicle with another agent named Dick Olson. They were parked in the driveway at Edwin Huber's home. And there they would sit until morning, watching the house and the yard. Edwin Huber came out of his house at 3 a.m. to talk momentarily with them. Apparently nobody was getting any sleep inside the Huber home. At the gravel pit, things were quiet and sullen. Half covered in tin and metal, the bodies of Wade and Ellen lay lifeless and partially exposed under the stars. Sheriff Deputy Ruid and Agents Liebeck and Hickman guarded the scene solemnly. They had been there alone since 11.30, and there they would stay until daylight. And, exactly one half-mile away to the east, BCI agents Merle Hankey and Dale Remus were at Katie Feist's farmstead, where they, too, had been assigned to provide security. While there, they learned more about the Feist boys. Hankey and Remus probed Alex Feist, son of Katie Feist and uncle of two of the suspects. This is from their report. Mr. Alex Feist advised the officers of the following information that two of his nephews, namely Sebastian Butch Feist, aged approximately 18, has been living at their residence since the fall of 1975 when they came there from California. He stated that Butch entered the school at Zeeland for a short period of time before being expelled. He stated that he has been somewhat troublesome to him, and in the morning hours of July 11th at approximately 3.40 to 4 a.m., he came back to the residence, stayed for approximately five minutes, and departed with his clothing, and has not been seen since. Mr. Alex Feist also advised the investigators that a second nephew by the name of David Feist, aged approximately 22, has been staying at the residence possibly since March or April. Alex Feist further stated that David has been working on the farm and at times for another farmer, but he's not been overly active in the farming activities at his place, but rather has been gone to a town in South Dakota for the purpose of seeing a girlfriend quite often. Alex Feist further stated that neither one of them had a car, so evidently they were with the third suspect, whom he thought might be Gregory Huber, a friend with whom they associate. He stated that besides the clothing that was taken, they also took along a 20-gauge single-shot shotgun, serial number, and brand name unknown. Alex also states that during the fall of 1975, the Feist brothers stole one box of shotgun shells from Alex. During the past month, David Feist has spent most of his time in Selby, South Dakota, where he was employed by the co-op as a truck driver. Sebastian Feist stayed with Alex at Alex's farm. When asked about other habits of David and Sebastian, Alex stated that David drank lots of beer, and in most cases Michelob brand, and smoked Camel Filter cigarettes, 
and Sebastian drank mostly Pepsi and Squirt and smoked Cool Brand cigarettes. Agents Hanky and Remus also had a chance to talk to Katie Feist, the boy's grandmother. Mrs. Feist added the following. The boys came home at approximately 4 a.m. She recalls that it was moonlit and partial daylight. She stated that Sebastian must have had all of his clothes packed ahead of time as they were in the house for less than five minutes. She stated that Sebastian came into her bedroom and said, Grandma, I want to kiss you. And then Mrs. Feist stated that he did, and she kissed him back. Mrs. Feist further reported that on last Thursday or Friday, namely July 8th or July 9th, that she lost $450 in $50 bills from her billfold, which is located in her bedroom at her residence, and she believes that it was taken by Sebastian Butch Feist. Further information supplied by Mrs. Feist is that David was in the penitentiary while in the Army, and when he got out of the Army, he was in the penitentiary in California and also had to pay a $1,000 fine. Finally, agents Hanky and Remus learned of a heartbreaking detail. Apparently, Sebastian Feist had recently lost or discarded his Social Security card. He needed a new one. And who do you think he turned to for help? The city auditor, Wade Zick. At the Feist home, the agents retrieved an envelope from the Social Security Administration. It was addressed to Sebastian Feist, care of Wade Zick, city auditor, Zealand, North Dakota. Hello, dear listener. This is James, host of Dakota Spotlight, inviting you to subscribe to Spotlight Plus. For as little as $5 per month, you will get the warm feeling of supporting the show and also unlock access to bonus episodes. Get the episodes early and listen ad-free. That's right, no more ads. Apple users can subscribe to Spotlight Plus Standard right in the Apple Podcasts app. If you want to dive deeper and get even more exclusive benefits, subscribe to Spotlight Plus Premium or Spotlight Plus Ultimate. Go to dakotaspotlight.com for more details. Chapter 10. Z is for Zik. When I asked people about Wade Zik, I was told that he was a very religious man. As I learned more about his family background, it made perfect sense. Both his mother's family and his father's family came from German, Lutheran backgrounds, and they were all highly involved in their churches. On his mother's side, his great-grandmother, Maria Kopsky, was born in 1819 near the Baltic Sea in northern Germany. At the age of 25, she gave birth to Wade Zick's maternal grandfather, Frederick Samuel Eckelberg. Both mother and son survived the birth, but the child's father passed away soon after. All alone with her son, Maria Eckelberg accepted a marriage proposal from her late husband's younger brother. His name was Christoph Friedrich Eckelberg, and like so many other Europeans, the family uprooted and headed for America, settling first in Wisconsin. As young boys tend to do, Frederick the boy became Frederick the man, and in Toma, Wisconsin, he fell in love with a woman named Augusta Nays. Just like Frederick, Augusta was from Germany. They were married in 1871, and later they moved to North Dakota, settling four miles west and three miles south of a town named Chafee in rural Cass County. They had several children, and one of them was Wade's mother. 
Alice Eckelberg. The Eckelbergs were farmers, of course. They worked Monday through Saturday, and then on Sundays, they traveled by horse and buggy a few miles north to a church they helped establish, St. John's Lutheran, which still exists today. Wade's mother, Alice, was possibly very much like other American children born of European immigrants, hardworking, tough, adventurous, and curious about her own future in this new world. As it would turn out, her future husband would be found just seven miles to the east. His name was Herman Zick. Herman Zick and his family were also from Germany. Karl Zick, Herman's father and Wade Zick's grandfather, was born in northern Germany, where he married a girl named Wilhelmine in 1867. Her face was thin and long, a feature that would trickle down through the generations all the way to Wade Zick. They had two children in Germany, then headed to America, where three more kids were born in Wisconsin. By 1880, the family was in North Dakota, also in rural Cass County, about four miles south of the town of Chafee. The Zicks were deeply religious, and Wade's grandfather, Carl, is listed as one of the founders and charter members of St. Peter's Lutheran Church, which was built three miles from their home. Also built there was a parish schoolhouse named the German School. Carl Zick donated both lumber and labor to the construction. Wade's father, Herman Zick, was born in 1882, the sixth of seven children and the youngest of four sons. Considering their common backgrounds and Lutheran upbringings and that they grew up within ten miles of one another, it's no wonder that Wade's parents found each other sooner or later. Alice Eckelberg and Herman Zick were both 25 years old when they married in 1908. Their son, Wade Zick, was born two years later. Two years after that, Wade's sister Dorothy joined them. As a young boy, Wade Zick looked exactly that, young and boyish, and somehow this appearance stayed with him throughout most of his life. He had his grandmother's narrow face, and with slightly protruding ears, a sharp nose, and full lips, there was something almost soft about Wade's appearance, even as a grown man. Wade's father and his uncles were farmers, and they all lived on nearby sections of land in Watson Township near Chafee. Wade grew up in a place where, just a short, dusty walk away, he could visit grandparents and cousins, uncles, and aunts. On Sundays, they met at St. Peter's Church, where sermons were conducted in the German language. After completing the eighth grade, Wade Zick most likely spent one year of religious studies before his confirmation, certainly at St. Peter's Church in the parish schoolhouse his grandfather Carl had helped to build. Sadly, it was around this time that Wade's mother, Alice, died. She was only 42. Wade's maternal grandparents, Frederick and Augusta Eckelberg, had long since retired and moved to Minneapolis. In fact, Grandpa Frederick died when Wade was only nine. Perhaps this is why, after his mother passed away, Wade is suddenly in Minneapolis, Minnesota, attending high school. He was likely sent there to live with Grandma Augusta, who lived on Lake Street, two blocks north of a school named South High. Imagine one day you're attending a one-room schoolhouse in the middle of a field in North Dakota, and the next, you're in a school with hundreds of other students. Just to give this a little perspective, when Wade Zick was born, 
there were only 298 people living in Watson Township where he lived. That's an area of 36 square miles. At South High School, there were 400 people, all in one school. In the school yearbook, Wade is mostly absent, appearing only in two photographs. One is his senior photo, and by chance I found a copy of the yearbook where Wade signed his name next to that photo. The other photo is a group photo for a club called The Pilot. The Pilot Club were responsible for publishing a school journal. This magazine was created, quote, with the purpose to guide the incoming pupils into the right channels of school spirit, school activities, and school traditions, unquote. In 1928, at the age of 18, Wade Zick graduated from South High School. When all your joys like broken toys lie at your feet And you have learned that It was at this point in Wade's life that he first became acquainted with the area of Zeeland and McIntosh County in south-central North Dakota. He spent one year as a type of apprentice teacher in a rural school. It seems quite probable that it was then that he met his future first wife, Leah Boshi, of Zealand. But marriage would have to wait. Wade entered a two-year teaching program at Valley City Teachers College. He graduated in 1932 and returned to his childhood roots near Chafee and began teaching. His father, Herman Zick, died that same year. He married Leah Boshi in 1934. His annual salary was $720. They rented a place in Chafee and involved themselves in education and in the church. Wade taught for eight years near Chafee at a rural schoolhouse named the Brocht School. There are photos of him in the 1940 school yearbook, his last year of teaching. He was the director of the Girls' Glee Club and the Boys' Glee Club. He taught a class called the Upper Grades. Wade and Leah Zick moved to Leah's hometown of Zealand. Wade took a position as manager of the Zeeland branch of the McIntosh County Bank and immersed himself in public service. He was on the school board and the city council, and he was a city auditor. Wade Zick was everywhere in Zeeland. You might even jokingly say that the Z in Zeeland stood for Zick. Wade and Leah had a lot going for them, but there was one thing they didn't have, a child of their own. And so, after 13 years of marriage, on July 24, 1947, they adopted a three-month-old baby girl, and they named her Nancy. And at some point, they also took in Wade's nephew, Donald Schramm. This was his sister Dorothy's son. Donald's middle name was Wade. This was certainly one of the happiest times in Wade and Leah's lives. World War II had ended, and the United States was on its feet. Wade had a good job, they had a nice small home in Zealand, and most of all, they had two children to care for. Things were looking really good for Wade and Leah, for their daughter Nancy, and for Wade's nephew, Donald.
Chapter 11 First Daylight At first light, law enforcement returned to the gravel pit to process the scene. Nine men were present, Sheriff Wiest and his deputy, an FBI agent named Brent Frost, and BCI agents Westfall, Liebick, Olson, Hankey, Remus, and Sickler. Olson and Sickler photographed the scene before it was scrutinized for evidence. The following are from BCI reports. Some of this is somewhat graphic. Special Agent Westfall. This pit is approximately 10 feet deep, 100 feet long, and 40 feet wide. The bodies were covered with various scrap items, a washing machine top, tin, barrels, cans, etc. Mrs. Zick had on a nightgown and a housecoat. Wade Zick had on a pajama top, shorts, and a bathrobe. Mr. Zick was on his back beside the tree, and Mrs. Zick was lying across his stomach, shot in the face. Mr. Zick had been shot in the upper stomach and upper chest with a shotgun, with only the upper chest wound exiting. Mrs. Zick was shot in the face on the right side, removing most of the interior head area. Mrs. Zick was also shot in the upper buttocks with a 22 caliber weapon. Special Agent Leibach Investigating officers spotted two 12-gauge shotgun shells lying close to the victims. The shells were tagged and placed in plastic baggies and kept in Sickler's possession. Samples of the dirt from the surrounding area were also gathered and sealed in envelopes. Pieces of flesh were collected and placed with its victim prior to the transportation of the bodies. One large piece of sheet metal was found lying next to the female victim, and a crated footprint was also noted on this piece of evidence, so it was tagged and collected. The investigators worked slowly and methodically. They rarely spoke, but when they did, their words were crafted in short and blunt sentences. Get a shot of this. More blood here. See these tire tracks. That's the thing about the remnants of a vicious murder. One of the few sounds that can turn even grown men speechless is the dead silence of the dead. By 8 a.m., the scene was thoroughly processed and the bodies were turned over to the county coroner. There remained just one somber deed before the bodies could be taken away. When a local pastor was asked to identify the bodies, he felt he just couldn't do it. And so they asked Don Wald instead, Wade and Ellen's son-in-law. This is Don Wald. The, the FBI had gone to the minister to, um, and this is the hard part, but uh, gone to the minister to go out and identify the bodies. Well, he wouldn't do it. He said, he can't. He could not do it. So the FBI agent came over and he said, so now you know what I'm going to ask of you. Yeah, I guess so. We went out to the, the uh, I, I always called it as a rock pile, a, a um, junk pile type thing. And um, Had they load the bodies up into the car already? Yeah. Yeah, they had them in what was, it wasn't like a hearse or anything, it was like a station wagon. They were both, had both bodies in there. So they hopefully kind of helped cover some of the... Um, with Wade, uh, he was like he was sleeping, had his glasses on. 
with Ellen, though, uh, she had been shot in the face. And there's nothing you could do. And I, even as far as ID, identifying the body, the only thing I recognized was her silver hair. She had her hair done that Saturday. And um, was her, her beautiful silver hair. And the rest was just... Um, and I've told people that if I was an artist, um, if I could do it, there are times I close my eyes and I could paint a very vivid, vivid picture of what I saw. Listening to Dakota Spotlight Season 2, Zealand, the untold story of Wade and Ellen Sick, their lives and their tragic murders in 1976. My name is James Wolner. After processing the gravel pit, BCI agent Sickler and Sheriff Wiest wanted to re-interview the Huber family and get it all on record. Sickler made a call to the Huber home, but oddly, he got no answer at all. He sent agent Milt Lenick out to find them. At 10.15, the Hubers arrived at the command center, and Gregory Huber's brother, Samuel, was interviewed again. A stenographer was present this time to record it all. After that, at 10.55, his father, Edwin, was also re-interviewed. With these interviews documented, Wiest and Sickler got in a car at 1 p.m. and raced 26 miles east to Ashley, North Dakota, the county seat. At the McIntosh County State's Attorney's Office, they met with Judge Hare, one state's attorney, and the Assistant Attorney General Calvin Hobson. At last, warrants were issued for the arrests of David Feist, Sebastian Feist, and Gregory Huber. All they had to do now was to find them. Oh, I heard it through the grapevine. Chapter 12. Hitchhiker. You and Hunter Dalton, John and Kiki D, don't go breaking my heart. I would like to remind you the bus rodeo is still going on. It's in the south side of the parking lot at Neptune. 1,300 road miles away on the outskirts of Flagstaff, Arizona, a family vacationing in a motorhome traveled west along Interstate 40, enjoying a landscape of mountain peaks and ponderosa pine. At an elevation of 7,000 feet, or 2,100 meters, the air remains cooler there than it does in the desert below. On that afternoon, the temperature never hit 80. In the 1970s, the ingredients of a family road trip were many. There were hasty bathroom breaks at full-service gas stations and Kodak Instamatic photo opportunities next to 
giant dinosaurs at truck stops. Eighteen-wheelers and truck drivers were almost celebrities ever since convoys and CB radios had become a part of pop culture. And when trapped inside of a car for hours, bell-bottom kids competed for control of the AM radio dial. And perhaps that is what this particular family was doing that day, listening to the radio as they approached the western edge of Flagstaff. On that week, the Winnebago was likely filled with songs like Afternoon Delight, Silly Love Songs, Don't Go Breaking My Heart, or maybe something by Peter Frampton like Baby I Love Your Way. Or if they dialed in the news, there were several stories circulating across the airwaves that day. The singer Cher had given birth to a son the day before. The Democratic National Convention was to begin that very evening in Madison Square Garden, and during the day, four small bombs had gone off around the convention area. Another story were about some murders, but not in North Dakota. The murders at California State University Fullerton were that very morning a man had walked into the library and shot nine employees, killing six of them. And Don Karen, Who is? Uh, uh, the department, uh, department chairman, right. uh, came, tried to wrestle the rifle away from him, and was beaten and shot several times. Regardless of what this family was listening to, near a freeway on-ramp at the edge of town, they witnessed a young hitchhiker with dark shoulder-length hair. A car wheel with new rubber on it was propped up against his leg. The driver pulled over and asked the kid where he was headed. Just twenty miles in this direction, the young man said with a smile. We got a flat and I had to hitchhike back to town to get a new tire. Well, jump on board then, the driver told him. We'll get you there. The hitchhiker climbed into the RV and found his seat. Thanks, everyone, he said. I'm Dave. The RV hummed down the highway for about 15 minutes until quite suddenly, straight up ahead, the driver saw what he thought was a flare screeching up into the sky. He slowed down some and said, There must be an accident up ahead. The young passenger, Dave, said, Well, this is my stop. I can jump out here then. Thanks again for the ride. As they grew closer, it became clear to the driver that it was not an accident at all. Just ahead, two blonde teenage boys stooped over something in the middle of the highway. While waiting on David Feist to return, Gregory Huber and Sebastian Feist had somehow found the time to leisurely shoot bottle rockets into the sky from right in the middle of the highway. Somehow, that seemed to be a good idea to them at the time. The RV pulled into the dust of the shoulder, and David Feist lugged his car wheel out of the door. As the big RV slowly pulled away onto the highway, the three young men stood and waved. And it begs a question, doesn't it? If only a few hours after committing a heinous crime, Butch and Greg are setting off fireworks, ordinarily reserved for celebration, do they not realize what is happening and what's going to happen? Are they in denial or shock, or do they simply not care that they have just destroyed so many lives forever, including their own? Gazing out of the windows at the passing landscapes, do these three boys feel free, or are they fully aware of their pending decline?
Chapter 13 Windows of Darkness By late Monday afternoon, most law enforcement agents had left Zealand. Some were relieved of their assignments, while others still had work to do. Agent Westfall was one of them. He went to Bismarck to assist with the autopsies of Wade and Ellen Zick. There they took fingernail scrapings from Wade and Ellen. Shotgun pellets were taken from both bodies, and a twenty-two slug was recovered from Ellen's right hip bone. Blood samples were taken from both victims. When it came time to collecting urine samples, however, they couldn't get one from Ellen. As anyone can understand, the terror that Ellen Zick went through that night resulted in her bladder being involuntarily purged before her death. On Monday evening, Zeeland let out a collective sigh of relief when they received word that the three suspects had been spotted in California. North Dakotans huddled around television sets that night not to watch the opening of the Democratic National Convention, but to find out the latest about the Zealand murders. One person who was there and who remembers these moments is Mike Wald. Mike is Wade and Ellen's grandson, and he was nine years old that weekend. He remembers his family getting the call in Bismarck, remembers his distraught mother and concerned father loading the family into the car and tearing off towards Zealand. When the incident incident happened, we stayed at a relative's house of ours, Ben and Ebby Walden. That was kind of like our headquarters, the family, throughout the time we were down there. The nights that we stayed there, there were a lot of people in the house that were staying there. And we, we, the family, um, my dad, mom, and my sister and I, we stayed in the same bedroom. But I remember the window to the bedroom and not knowing and being a kid that, you know, that was someone going to come, come in? Is someone going to come back? Is someone going to do something to us? You know, um, and, and just being in the house and, and the news broadcasts and, and seeing, seeing it on TV and the room would, rooms would, room would get quiet, you know, then somebody would, you know, break down. But, and then again, as kids, you, we didn't ask. We knew or I knew it wasn't, it wasn't good. And I guess knowing that they were still, still out, still loose, you know, and not knowing where they are, maybe, maybe my parents over time knew, you know, had, had an idea where they were headed, where they were spotted, but we didn't know. And so not knowing, you know, can it, could it happen again or, you know, could it happen to us was, you know, I think it had, I'm going to say a little, little more effect on us than maybe, some people realized a little bit, you know, um, and, I, and I, obviously as you get older, it, you know, it kind of w- wears away. But yeah, it was, it was uh, at times uh, pretty frightening for, at least for me, you know, that, you know, not knowing. So it was in this low wooded area about two miles northeast of Zealand, where a search party late last night found the bodies of 66 year old Wade Zick, the manager of the Zealand branch of the McIntosh County Bank and his 65-year-old wife, Ellen. The two bodies were found against that tree over there with all of the debris in the foreground laying on top of them. Authorities theorize the two were murdered in connection with an extortion attempt to get money from the McIntosh County Bank. 
Mr. Zick had been manager of the bank for 35 years. On Sunday morning, friends were concerned when Mr. Zick did not appear at the Zion Lutheran Church, where he was the choir organist. The FBI theorizes the Zicks were awakened at home late Saturday night or early Sunday morning and forced to go to the bank. About $3,000 has been found missing from the bank. The FBI says the Zicks were then shotgunned to death in their pajamas. Three Zealand men are being sought. They are 22-year-old David Anthony Feist and his 18-year-old brother Sebastian, better known as Butch, and another 18-year-old whose picture appears with 1976 graduates of Zealand High School, Gregory Huber. The three were seen yesterday before APBs were put out by authorities in Casper, Wyoming. The other voice you are about to hear is McIntosh County Sheriff Milton Wiest. And tell me what this does to a community like Zealand in this McIntosh County area. Well, it's quite a blow to a community as such as this. Uh, something that people read about and think it happens elsewhere, and uh, it's quite a blow to find out when it happens in their own backyard. The banker, an upstanding member of the community? Uh, Very well-liked man of the community, yes. People here in Zealand are shocked and appalled at the Zick murders. They call it a senseless act. And now a new element, the element of fear is here. The bank's assistant manager, Francis Stribel, says, we never lived with fear before, but now there will be some. Dennis Newman reporting from Zealand. Still to come on Dakota Spotlight Season 2. There's a way station right there, and they could have just parked it there, and nobody would have noticed it for a week. I mean, there's photos of us at, sitting in his chair at the bank. We loved going to the bank. The funeral was overwhelming. Coming out, KFYR had their cameras set up in the middle of the intersection. Townspeople were attending the funeral of Wade and Ellen Zick. A crowd of 700... That, folks, was episode three of this rebroadcast of Zealand. In case you're wondering how I know all that stuff about what happened in Wyoming with Officer Robinette hearing the APB, recognizing the name David Feist from a speeding ticket bond, or for that matter, how I learned what Sheriff Wiest and BCI were up to minute by minute, day by day. As you might have guessed, it was from police records. But the truth is, I was very close to never getting those reports at all. In fact, if I'd waited a couple more years, I never would have gotten them. I'll tell you plus subscribers about that in the newsletter and in bonus episodes. When I re-listened to this episode, I was struck by Don Wald's account of things. Don was the Zick's son-in-law, married to Nancy Zick. Identifying the bodies, that was a courageous act, I think. Don Wald is no longer with us. He passed away in February of 2021. I do hope you're enjoying this rebroadcast of Zealand. I know some of you have heard it before, but this is really a season close to my heart. And meanwhile, I'm working on new seasons and stories for Dakota Spotlight. You Plus members in the Ultimate tier, don't forget to get a digital copy of the music from this story. Also, this whole season is available in audiobook format. Just the whole thing in one file or episode, chapter by chapter, without all my podcast intros and outros. It's almost five hours in length. To find out more, head over to dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you so much for being here. I will see you next time. Dakota Spotlight is produced solely by myself at Everything Midwestern LLC in the state of North Dakota. And I'm going far away. Permission to use the songs North Dakota, Mile Marker, Cold Black River, and others granted generously by Peter Hicks. 
performed by Sleepy Driver. Check out and support Sleepy Driver's music on Spotify or at sleepydriver.bandcamp.com where you can purchase a special Dakota Spotlight Season 2 digital collection with the music from this season. See the link in the show notes or at dakotaspotlight.com. Thank you, Peter Hicks and Sleepy Driver. To God Be the Glory, sung by the Sunday School children at St. Peter's Church, Chafee, North Dakota, three miles from Wadezik's childhood home. To see photographs, videos, and other premium content, and to support this project all at the same time, please visit dakotaspotlight.com. My email is dakotaspotlight at gmail.com. I'm always looking for the next story. Do you know what that story should be? Thank you so much for listening and for coming along with me to North Dakota. And now I'm bound for North Dakota To where they got more sky than ground Cause I'm tired of California And that dirty little town Yeah, I'm bound for North Dakota To where silence is the sound And I wanna take you with me Cause I like your kind around Sleeping in my car With the radio on and the windows down And I'm up before the dawn Before this heartache gets the best of me I'm gone and moving on From that city of the lost Thank you so much for listening. To support my work, get early access, listen ad-free, and much more, please consider subscribing to Spotlight Plus. Apple users can even subscribe right in the Apple Podcasts app. Learn more about Spotlight Plus at dakotaspotlight.com.